Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. I announced this just a moment ago, but as you are coming in, please make sure that, number one, you pick up communion elements, all right? And then, number two, Frank, would you bring me communion elements, please? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, all right? Um, so make sure that you have communion elements. Thank you, sir. And then, number two, in just a few moments, we are going to have our congregational meeting. And for that purpose, you need to pick up a bulletin, okay? The bulletin, and especially, this is for members, because only members can vote in our congregational meeting today, okay? But members especially, everybody needs one, but members get a bulletin, not just for your family, but for each member, because the bulletins contain the ballots, okay? And we will be moving to that in just a few moments here. But again, let me welcome you to Old Providence ARP Church. It's so good to be back with you this morning. Let me start by saying I appreciate all of your prayers as I was out of town last week. And I was way, way out of town in Namibia, Africa, in fact, which is the nation just above South Africa. I was representing our denomination at the International Conference of Reformed Churches. I believe there were representatives from 37 other denominations, Presbyterian and Reformed, that were present. It was an excellent week of communication that I think was very beneficial for all involved, especially as we looked at seminary training and how we can come alongside weaker denominations in places like Africa and Asia. Now, thank you for your prayers. Um, let me say this. I had safe travel and I had no incidents. However, I cannot begin to express how heartbroken I am over the fact uh, that I was not here for Herman's passing and funeral. Barry Dagenhart, his son-in-law, who's pastor at First Rock Hill ARP, did a wonderful job, but even so, I'm, I'm just so very sorry that I wasn't here. Uh, upon hearing that Herman's condition had worsened and of his passing, I immediately tried to get a flight home, but it was simply impossible. It's a two-step trip. You've got to fly north to Europe, and then you've got to fly west to the United States, and it just was not possible to get another flight. Um, however, I, I delight in the fact that though we have sorrow over Herman's passing, I delight that he is in glory in that heavenly worship service right now that we get to participate in too. Now, uh, I very much appreciate Evelyn and, and the family's understanding and, and your kindness in these things, um, and I'm so grateful for Barry being here as well. Now. Uh, we have a very full day today, again, with a congregational meeting in just a few moments to elect elders. Also, we are taking communion together today, but I do need to make a few announcements. First off, due to our full schedule this morning, there will be no children's message. Also, there is no children's church. Children and parents, uh, we don't dismiss today because while children may not take communion, this is a time of real learning for them as they participate with us and watch us take communion. Uh, parents, this is an opportunity for you to teach your children about communion and our Lord's sacrifice. So I would, uh, I pray that you will take that opportunity. Also, there is no youth group tonight due to the fact that James McDougal is being ordained and installed as a pastor at Edgemont ARP. And that's this afternoon at 4 p.m. You are all invited. I got home around 10 o'clock Friday night. We had Presbytery all day yesterday, and I'm speaking this afternoon at, at James's service. But it is a very special day for James and Elizabeth. Now, other things. Tomorrow, 
We'll have Monday midday at 11 a.m., um, and I would encourage you all to be there for that. However, I need your prayers because I'm going to be in an incredibly important meeting. I actually spoke with Max Bolin yesterday, my predecessor. He's going to be part of this meeting as well for our denomination because of very serious things that are going on. We need your prayers. Another thing that we need for Old Providence is volunteers. You'll notice the insert in your bulletin for trunk or treat. That's one week from today at 4 p.m. We need volunteers to come and use your trunk for the trunk or treat. We need candy donations. See my wife if you would like to volunteer for that, and we do need your help. Now, there are other things going on, but I'm going to let you find those in your bulletin. Um, but again, today is a special day. Today is special because we come together in order to elect elders in a congregational meeting. But even more importantly, we come to the table. That time in which the Lord calls us to remember what he has done, yes, but also that time where we are lifted spiritually into God's presence to receive all the benefits of his covenant promises to us. So even now, prepare your hearts as the Lord calls us together today. Now, I will recognize Finley Lotz, our congregational chairman, as we begin our meeting. And again, as you're coming in if, and as you're here, if you're a member and you don't have a bulletin, make sure that you get one and also make sure to pick up communion elements. Finley?
All ballots collected. All ballots upstairs. At the end of the worship service, if you will remain a few moments, we'll announce the results of this. Or in the case of a tie, we will have to have a vote for those folks if there is a tie. But we will announce at the end of the service. We will now begin our worship. Thank you very much, Finley. Again, such an important time in the life of Old Providence, and we have so many things to be grateful for. So let us now come together and worship the Lord and prepare our hearts as Donna leads us in the prayer. Our call to worship this morning is found in the 33rd Psalm. It says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right. And all his work is trustworthy. He loves the righteous and justice the earth is full of the lord's unfailing love the heavens were made by the word of the lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth he gathers the waters of the sea into a heap he puts the depths into the storehouses let the whole earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came into being he commanded and it came into existence the Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of Jehovah stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen to be his own possession. My friends, most certainly the psalmist is speaking of ancient Israel here. However, the implication remains true for you and me today. For as we are gathered in this place, considering the generations of God's faithfulness, the fact that his son has kept his promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus Christ is still at work. And as a result, we can say with such awe and gratitude that we are happy. Because the Lord has chosen us to be his own possession. And yet we need not, we dare not forget the means by which this is possible. The elements that you picked up when you came in today point to these things. And I'll say more on this at the end of the service when we celebrate communion. But as we enter into this time, let us enter in with grateful hearts, praising the Lord. 
for what he has done. Let's go to him now and we'll, as I lead us in prayer, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together and confess the Apostles' Creed. Let's go to him now. Our God and our Father, what a blessing it is to be here. As we have read from your word, how blessed we are, how happy we are that you have chosen us to be your own, that you have preserved Old Providence as a church, as a congregation, yes, but beyond Old Providence, that you are still building your church. That in this world of darkness and gloom, the light of Jesus Christ blazes forth and so many are coming to know you. Oh, Father, as we enter into this time, help us to remember these things as we lift up songs of praise. As we pray, as we go to your word, as we come to the table, as it were, give us grateful hearts, for it is you that have provided all of these things and brought us here. In all of these things, Father, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that this time would be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name, and we also pray as he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now as we say the Apostles' Creed together, let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. Let us now stand together. And if you'd like to use the hymn book, you may. The words are on the screen, but we're singing hymn number one, Praise Ye the Lord the Almighty. Please stand as we sing together. Praise Ye the Lord the Almighty, hymn number one.
Thank you very much. You may be seated. Now, as we go into this time of silent prayer, let me encourage you to consider that we had, which we have just lifted up. Let me to encourage you to consider why the Lord has brought us here today, that we have this time, spend this time in silent prayer, focusing on the Lord's goodness. Spend this time taking your sins and your confessions before him as we come to the table later today. But now, let's go to the Lord in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in the pastoral prayer. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, whether it is in what we have just lifted up to you in song, that you are the Almighty One, or whether it is what we have read from your word, as the psalmist recounted the fact that you are the creator and maker of all things, both of these point to your magnificence. Both of these point to your glory. Both of these call us to stop and to recognize that you are the almighty God and that we aren't. That you are the creator and we are the created. That you hold dominion on high and we are called to be your faithful and loyal subjects. All of these things also point us to who we really are apart from you. That without you, we're dead. We're dead in our sins and our transgressions. We're blind, having eyes that cannot see. We're deaf, having ears that cannot hear. As your son has said, he is the vine, we are the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And yet, Father, in our brokenness, in our fallen estate, you have lifted us up. You have made us your own. By the blood of Jesus Christ poured out, by his body broken, you have adopted us as your children. And in so doing, you have made us brothers with Christ Jesus and co-heirs to the kingdom of God. We do not deserve such favor. We've done nothing to earn or to merit salvation. As one said, the only thing we've contributed is the sin that makes it necessary that we're saved. And yet, you love us with a love that is so pure and free. You delight in us. And your word tells us that we're the object of your glory being created as the pinnacle of all things and with all things underneath us. Oh, Father, forgive us when we forget these things. 
Forgive us when we let pettiness creep in. When, though we have been shown so much mercy, we lack mercy. Forgive us for our short-sightedness when we miss the fact that you are at work. And not only that, but you let us participate in your grand plan of redemption. Oh, Father, we can't go back. As I survey my own life, I miss so many opportunities. None of us can go back, but we can go forward trusting in you. So, Father, please, in this time, direct us back to yourself. Give us a renewed passion, even a tenacity for your word, for the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. And help us to see where we fit in. Along the way in all of these things, Father, we know that we face challenges. As we think about things going on here at Old Providence, we think about those that are sick and struggling. We pray that you would be with Dale and others that are facing medical issues that are quite difficult. We ask that you would bring doctors wisdom, that you would help medicines to work, that treatments would be successful, and that health would be restored. Still others are suffering in other ways. We think of those who have lost loved ones recently, especially, especially the Ritchie family. While we are sorrowful over the nature of this life, that we must taste death, we praise you that death is not the final verdict, that instead the grave has no victory, and that Herman has gone on before us and is with all those that have gone on before him that know and love you. And that he is in that heavenly worship service right now, praising you. Though in the meantime, Father, while we wait on that reality for ourselves, we do face sorrow. So I pray that you would bring comfort to all of his family, to Evelyn, to Randy, to Sarah, to, to grandchildren, to, to everyone involved. Bring, comfort our church. And restore us to joy. I pray that in light of others that have been lost. Both recently and for some time now. We fool ourselves, Father, when we think that grief is linear. That it's a point A and point B. When instead we deal with the nature of this life. Help us to seek your face as we do. And bring us comfort by your Holy Spirit. We pray this not only for ourselves. We pray it for your church universal. For the problems that we face at Old Providence are no different than anywhere else. We pray again and again and again that you would direct us to Jesus Christ. That we would seek his face. That we would remember his sacrifice. And even now, as we are in this time where very soon we will partake of the elements, help us to remember his body broken and his blood poured out. Help us to examine ourselves that we would not take communion improperly and thus bring your judgment. Instead, again, may we seek the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his mighty name. Amen. Well, I am excited to be back with you all this morning as we make a transition in our series on the names of God. 
Over the last several months, our primary focus has been on the names of God the Father first in the Old Testament. Then we began focusing on the names of God the Son in the New Testament, primarily at least. And most recently, we have been focusing on the I Am statements of Christ. Those things that he tells us about himself. But now, as we move forward in this series, it's only fitting that we focus on God the Holy Spirit. As it is with God the Father and God the Son, it's through his names that the Holy Spirit reveals who he is. What he does, what he has done, and what he will yet do. It's through his names. It's through our trusting in all of the promises revolving around those names that we know God. And as I started with in this series, I'll ask again, why is it important to know God? Well, there are many references in God's word that testify to the importance of knowing him. But as you know, I like Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 when it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is coming from God himself, you see. And he says, of all the things that you could boast in, and this passage shows you what the world really boasts in, right? The world prides itself on being smart, on being wise, on being healthy, on being strong, on being rich. These are the things that the world around you lauds and magnifies. However, what the Lord says is most important is knowing him. Understanding and knowing God is of primary importance. It's important both now in this life, but it's so important for eternity as well. Here's the thing, though, as it relates to God, the Holy Spirit. And if you're wondering about these terms that I'm using, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, I'm using them because we affirm the Trinity. God in three persons, same substance, separate persons. The Father is God, but is not the Son of the Holy Spirit. The Son is God, but is not the Father of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but is not the Father or the Son. And if that warps your mind as you try to consider these things, well, that's just fine because there's all sorts of things that we claim to understand, but we don't really. But that we instead take by faith. One commentator put it this way. He said, the man who tries to understand the Trinity will lose his mind. And that's true, isn't it? How can the Holy Spirit be God and God the Father be God and God the Son be God, but they're not each other. They're the same substance, but they're three separate persons. How can that be? It's like I talked about a couple of weeks ago. How can eternity exist? How can there be a time when there's not time, you know, if, if we try to understand these things, we lose our minds. However, the man who denies the Trinity will lose his soul. You understand that? We have all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that are together, but they are separate. We affirm the Trinity because of what we learn in God's word. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Because the concept is throughout the scriptures. We saw it the last time we were together with Jesus, God the Son. 
testifying to the fact that before Abraham was, I am. Again, how can this be? We know that Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. How could he be before Abraham, who was born hundreds of years before that? Because God the Son is eternal. That's just one example. We see the Trinity in many places in the Bible. Take the very beginning of God's Word. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we learn, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you see from the very first verse in the Bible that God is spoken of as singular. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is one in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But then in verse 2, you find the Spirit of God. That's very fascinating, isn't it? So you have God, the Father. You have God, the Holy Spirit. They're separate, but they're still God. And if you say, okay, great. Well, what about Jesus? If you fast forward to John chapter 1, you find out that when God created the heavens and the earth, that it was the Son of God that was the agent of creation, the one through whom all things were made. That's why we read in John 1, 3, all things were made by him. Talking about Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so you find all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all there together, but separate. One substance, three persons. In short, we affirm the Trinity because the Bible tells us that the Trinity is the truth, that the Trinity is there. And yet, even though God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God, I found something in my time as a pastor. I I found that we typically know lots of things about God the Father. And we know lots and lots of things about God the Son. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, our knowledge tends to fall off. And woe be to us for this reality. There's lots of different reasons for this that I won't get into immediately right here at the start of the the series, but, but one reason we don't know about the Holy Spirit is that in Protestantism, and we're Protestants, it's what we are, Protestants, Protestants, excuse me, tend to react away from things. There have been abuses regarding the Holy Spirit, for instance, in other denominations and in the charismatic movements. There have been misrepresentations of spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts work, how the Holy Spirit functions. And so some denominations tend to stay away from anything to do with the Holy Spirit at least practically speaking. But there's another reason, I believe, that little is known of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have to do with reactions to other portions of Christianity so much as it has to do with a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of relationship with the Holy Spirit. Look, it comes down to this, and and I'll say this now, but we'll come back to this concept as we continue through this series on the Spirit But realize that when we avoid the Holy Spirit, when we shy away from the Holy Spirit, we shy away from God. Because you can't separate God from the Holy Spirit. You you just can't do it. And when you try to do it, what you find is a Christianity that can be very immature, very hampered, very ineffective, or worse, you can find a Christianity that isn't at all Christian. Take this to the bank. When we avoid the Holy Spirit, 
we do serious damage to ourselves as individuals and as the church. Take Christianity in the United States, for example. Look, there are a lot of reasons why we're in the mess that we're in in America with Christianity. It all starts with denying the truth of God's word. But the real source of denying the truth of God's word is often enough not having a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because, y'all, the Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates God's word for us. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us understand. That's why in just a few moments when I pray, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to turn the lights on so that we can see. So that we can understand. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's word so that we can understand. And if you deny the Spirit or you don't have a relationship with the Spirit, if you run from the Spirit, then God's word will not be illuminated for you. Or you will be severely hampered in your understanding of it. Hence our problem with denying God's word. You see, we are to live lives filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Hence, our focus on the Holy Spirit in this study. Now, that's all the introduction I'm going to give to this transition in our series on the names of God. Let's dig in. The central question, who is the Holy Spirit? How has God revealed the Holy Spirit to us? We find that answer in part in the first name that we come to. And we find that name in Romans. The book of Romans chapter 8. So go ahead and take your Bibles if you brought them, and I hope you did. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8 with me, and we will have the words on the screen in just a few moments. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. But, as I said I would, we need to stop, and we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us now as we go to God's Word. So let's go to the Lord. Our God and our Father, again, as we come to your Word, we find ourselves in desperate need of help. As I've already said, without your Holy Spirit, we're lost. We will not understand. We may pick up some of the, uh, the, the obvious statements here. We may see the academic meaning, but we will not understand what you want us to do. Help us, first of all, to realize that your word always has a calling for us. <laughs> that we're never called to just have your word or possess your word or just read your word as if it's anecdotal knowledge. Instead, your word calls us to change. Father, we're not going to do that apart from your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would guide us now. That we would understand. That we would know how to apply your word. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 8 is where we are starting. Beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And look for that name of the Holy Spirit. It says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of this flesh is death. 
but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And we'll stop reading right there. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Now, before reading, I ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, y'all, admittedly, the answer to this question is complex. It's rich. It's full. But the first and primary, the, the ultimate answer to this question was still revealed in the text that, that we just read. But in order to understand the name and who the Holy Spirit really is, we have to understand the progression of what's going on in this text right here. Realize that the book of Romans, just talking about Romans as a whole, it's considered Paul's magnum opus, right? It's, a, it's his largest and most theologically astute work. But we shouldn't complicate the book of Romans needlessly because the whole point of the book of Romans is that Paul is writing the church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans, right? He is writing the Romans telling them the basis of why he's doing what he's doing. Namely, he's telling them why he's going around and starting churches. He's telling them why he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans explains what Christianity is and how Christianity works. And so where we pick up today in chapter 8 is an explanation of how the gospel functions, how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. And also why the gospel really is the good news. That's what that word gospel means, good news. Romans 8 tells us why it's good news. The best news ever, in fact. So, so to that end, we've already read it, but look at verse 1 again. If you're wondering why the gospel is good news, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But y'all, as I always say, I don't even know how many times I've said it, when you start reading and you come to a therefore, what do you do? You stop and ask what the therefore is there for, okay? And in order to understand why the gospel is good news, you got to understand what comes before this. Romans 7 obviously sets up Romans 8. So flip back to verse 14 with me. I just want to read this last section of Romans 7. Because if you don't get this in Romans 7, you're not going to understand Romans 8. Now, so look at Romans 7. Look at verse 14 with me. I need to flip back there. Okay, this is what Paul writes, but this is the word of God. Starting in verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. Pausing for a second, Paul is talking about the reality that we face, that God is holy and we're not. That in order to be with God, we have to be holy. And God has given us his law to follow. And he says here, the law is spiritual, but I'm not. I'm of the flesh. Verse 15. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my flesh 
For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present within me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. Or I delight uh, in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Stop right there. Admittedly, that's a little confusing, isn't it? I do what I want to do. I don't do what I did. It's a tongue twister. That's on purpose. And it's even worse in the Greek. Do you see why Romans 7 has been called perhaps the most depressing portion of all scripture? I saw a bumper sticker once and it said, get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. Right? And the reason for that is all this confusing stuff. What Paul's simply doing here is he's pointing out the nature that we all have. And speaking of himself, Paul said that what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And it's the things that he didn't want to do that he ends up doing. And the reason he does this is because there's nothing good in him. That's why verse 24 ends with him saying, what a wretched man I am. And he refers to his body as this body of death. And he's not talking about the fact that we are all mortals. He's talking about what sin does to us. How it has these long talons and it it latches into us. Paul's been accused of all sorts of things here. Is he a ray of sunshine? No. But is he being real? Yes. In fact, while Romans 7, this section, is considered one of the most depressing sections of the Bible, it is so real. It's as real as a razor blade across your thumb. Paul gets it, and he's honest about what all of us are like, how we struggle with sin. And struggle isn't even the right word, y'all. I've used this example before. Y'all know I I like the Rambo movies, right? And one of the last ones, they keep on making them. I I don't know how that's going to end up. You know, I don't know if if Rambo is going to be in the hospital for the next film or what. But nevertheless, they keep making these films no matter how old Sylvester Stallone gets. But in one of the last ones, there's a portion where he has a flashback. And he's thinking about all the battles he's fought. And he, he, he ends up saying in this flashback, he says, For me, killing is as easy as breathing. Now that sounds awesome, right? If you like action movies. That doesn't apply to us. For us, sinning is as easy as breathing. What Paul's pointing out here in chapter 7 is we sin and we don't even realize it. Because sin is not just the things that you do with your hand. It's not just what's in your head. It's not what's in your heart alone. It's it's the things that you leave undone. We can sin. We can do the right thing and at the same time sin because we do the right thing for, for the wrong reasons. You see, Paul is simply pointing all of these things out And just think how terrible Romans would be if it ended in verse 24. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 25, which is probably where Romans chapter 8 should have started. Remember, chapters and numbers were added later. But look at verse 25. He says, 
Thanks be to God. Now this is right after he said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now we know what the therefore is therefore. Chapter 8 is set up against chapter 7 as an alternative. The truth is that we're sinners to our core. We struggle with sin. But praise God, though we are sinners, though we are guilty, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, this is why the gospel is good news. This is why we also have no business talking about what we deserve. I had a seminary professor that said, deserve? He said, we deserve to be in hell with our backs broke. That's deserve. Yet in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for us. We find out in verse 1 of Romans 8 that there really is hope. Hope that we don't have to be slaves to sin and ultimately death. And that hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful. But how is it possible? This is one of those things that we say, wait a second, this sounds too good to be true. How does all of this work? Well, that's where the first name of God, the Holy Spirit, comes in today. In verse 1, Paul writes that, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question is, how are we in Christ Jesus? Look at verse 2. It says, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Again, we're not under the spirit of the law and death because of the spirit of life. That same spirit has been set, been, is responsible for setting us free. Christians have been set free by the spirit of life. I asked you before, who is the Holy Spirit? My friends, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life that Paul wrote of here. The Holy Spirit is the means by which this wonderful good news can be applied to you and me. The spirit of newness, of purpose, of belonging, of freedom and more. And it's all encapsulated by God's word revealing that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. The reason I wanted to begin with this name as opposed to other names of God for the Holy Spirit is because right from the start we need to understand and appreciate who God the Holy Spirit actually is. I alluded to this earlier, but there's lots of misconceptions out there concerning the Holy Spirit. We, we've talked about some of the reasons why, but mainly I believe this is the case because the church really hasn't done that great of a job in teaching on the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, I'm part of the problem. I haven't spent an overabundance of time talking about God, the Holy Spirit. I've been your pastor for five years now. I've spent time talking about the Holy Spirit compared to the Father and the Son, and, and if you it's lopsided for sure. And, and I would guess that I spend a lot more time talking about the Holy Spirit than many other pastors. And this is a problem because of who God's word has told us the Holy Spirit is. And what the Holy Spirit does. Again, he's the spirit of life. You know, I was curious about this. I, I did some research prior to writing this sermon. You know what? Uh, there's surveys on this. If you ask the average person that professes to be a Christian what the Holy Spirit actually does. You know what the number one answer is? 
It's not a bad answer, but the number one answer is that the Holy Spirit comforts in the context of death. Like when a loved one dies. And that is a good answer. After all, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. And we'll get to that in this series eventually. But that's pretty much the extent of what the average Christian believes the Holy Spirit does. And what a scandal this is. Look at what God's word has said about the Spirit here in Romans 8. Especially in light of all of that in chapter 7. Chapter 7, Paul calls himself, and by extension, you and me too. We're called dead. It's said that we have this body of death. Paul says that we are all wretches. We're slaves to sin that we can't stop on our own. He says we're out of control. We're weak with no hope whatsoever. But because of Jesus Christ, we're not condemned and we have hope. And Paul says that the way that all of this is possible, the reason that we have hope, the reason that we're not under the law, but instead under the spirit of life is because of the Holy Spirit. So you see in this first name of God, the spirit that we come to, the the teachings on God, the spirit, they're not about death in the context of comfort and death. The Holy Spirit focuses on life. Romans 8 doesn't call the spirit the spirit of death. He's the spirit of life, the spirit of life for the living. Do you see how lopsided things have become? Consider what our passage is saying here. We have zero hope of keeping God's law. And why is that? Because of what sin does inside us. This isn't complicated. You and I are not perfect. We we struggle with sin. And so as a result, we've got to have a way out. Enter the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's only in him that we can have a new identity. But the way that we are saved according to Paul, according to God's word, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this shows us right here at the start of our series that the Holy Spirit is pivotal, is of the utmost importance to understanding who we are as God's people. You know, too often the Holy Spirit has been painted as a member of the Trinity that shows up after we're saved to teach, to comfort, and so forth. But in light of what we've read already here and elsewhere in God's Word, though we are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our salvation is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul goes on to say what he does. He says, for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Let me translate. He sent Jesus to be our substitute. We couldn't fulfill his law, yet Jesus could and would and did. And he was sent as our offering. Why? Verse 4. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. What is this saying? How must we walk? The basis of our Christianity must be walking according to the Spirit. And he tells us why. He says, for those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on the things of the Spirit. What God's Word is getting at here is the transition that takes place in our lives when we trust in Jesus Christ. You know, far too often, 
people make the grand mistake of viewing Christianity as a philosophy that they might ascribe to or subscribe to. They look at it as, well, I prefer these things in life and I've weighed out all the options and therefore I think I will prefer to follow the teachings of Christianity. We try to make things so logical. You know, the Bible leaves no room for this nominal Christianity. In fact, as we've read, when you become a Christian, if you become a Christian, it changes everything about who you are. And therefore, as we come to the table and are called to evaluate ourselves, if you've never seen any change, it may be because you've never become a Christian. I say that with a heavy heart, but I say that because I love you. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to do the things of the flesh. If you live based on this world around you, you're going to do the things that are important to this world around you. But we're called to live by the Spirit. Verse 6, now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Do these two things describe who you are? You know, again... It, I'm not meaning to be hard or to be tough here. But God's word is clear. If you belong to Jesus Christ, it's because the spirit of life has saved you. And if you have no sense of life, if you have no sense of peace, it's probably because you don't have the prince of peace, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Guys, you can't get more crystal clear than this. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you will never please God. You will never be with God. It is simply impossible. And yet we are given hope. You, however, are not in the flesh. And this is for those trusting in Christ. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And listen, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You know, there's lots of different things that you could say. There's lots of different ways to put this. But y'all, it comes down to the basic truth that if you do not care about the things of Jesus Christ, it's because you don't care about Jesus Christ himself. If you will not heed God's word, it's because his word is not in you. Another grand mistake that we make is saying that we believe in certain things, but the reality is, and I say this with a heavy heart because I know my own guilt. What you do is what you believe. You can say all day long, oh yes, I believe in these things over here. But if your life shows that you do those things over there, those things over there are what you really believe because what you believe is what you do. And again, I say that with a heavy heart because I stand before you not with clean hands, but as a sinner and yet a sinner saved by Jesus Christ. Praise be to God that he intervenes. That's why it's so important that we understand what this passage is saying about the spirit of life. Do you see the difference between life and the spirit as opposed to life on your own? In summation, God's word uses this, the first name that we come to for the Holy Spirit. Because life in the Spirit is the only way to truly live. 
The alternative to living in the Spirit is living in sin. You will either live in the Spirit or you will live in sin. And living in sin is no life at all. It's a life of affliction. It's a life of slavery. It's a life of weakness and bondage. It's a life that's just reactions and addictions and drudgery. But we're called to something more. God's Word calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of life because if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, with Him all things are possible. And the world is open to you. It becomes a place of freedom and beauty, not slavery and darkness. And it all comes down to first, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? That's what verse 1 alludes to. And number two, are you living in the Spirit? You know, when people complicate things, living in the Spirit is no more than trusting in the Spirit. Having a relationship with the Spirit. Let me ask you something. Do you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you? When you go to God's Word, do you ask that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes so that you could see? The Holy Spirit is the one that directs. Have you asked the Holy Spirit to show you what God wants you to do? If not, do not wait. Turn to Jesus Christ today. But if you are doing this, then take heart and be encouraged. Let your faith be strengthened. Take the time to consider what God has done for you in the Holy Spirit. Consider that you're not alone in this life. That the Holy Spirit has been given to you. And what's more, God puts people in your life with a purpose. Consider that God can change anything in the blink of an eye. And don't be pessimistic about that. Realize that as a result of what the Holy Spirit does, God can redeem any situation for His glory and for your good. Why? How? Because God is not only God the Father. He's not only God the Son. God the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. For the living. And that's all those who have trusted in Christ. So right here at the start. I hope that you see that the Holy Spirit exists for far more than death and dying. But instead is there for the living. And to that end he doesn't leave us alone. In times of trouble or need he sustains us. He gives us the power of God that we need to face life. Enabling us to live as we are called to live. And one of the means by which he does that is through the table set before us. Through communion. What is communion? It is that time in which we remember, yes. It's that time in which we testify, absolutely. But it is that time in which by the Holy Spirit we are lifted into the presence of Jesus Christ to receive all the benefits of belonging to him. It is the Holy Spirit that lifts us now. Do you believe this? Do you live in light of what the Spirit is doing? It is my prayer that you do. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, what a blessing it is that we are saved by the Spirit of life. That this world is not all about death. It's not all about destruction. It's not all about loss. But instead, it's about purpose. It's about meaning. It's about hope. And our hope is in you. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving us by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his body that was broken. 
by applying these things through the spirit of life. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to this portion of the service again, if you did not pick up elements, they are available at the back of the sanctuary. But as we come to this portion of the service, let me invite you to partake of this time with us together. In just a moment, we're going to sing, follow our custom, and sing Bible song number 242, the first two stanzas, and then we'll sing the third after. But consider these words as we sing them together. Please stand with me now as we sing the first two stanzas of Bible song number 242. Please be seated. Again, as we come into this time, let me invite you to take communion with us. However, be warned, communion is not for everyone. It is for those that are first and foremost, those that belong to the body of Jesus Christ. Communion is for those who profess faith in Christ, but not just profess faith. Communion is for those that are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And furthermore, communion is for those that are living out faith and repentance. The reason I mention those two is very important. Communion is not a time for those who are perfect. In fact, if our being perfect was possible, we would not have communion. For what would it say of God if it were possible for us to be saved by any other means than the body and blood of his Son and our Savior? No, if it were possible for us to save ourselves, that would turn God into a monster for sacrificing his son. As we've read from Romans 7 and 8, the truth is we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. So are you trusting in him alone? 
and are you living out repentance and faith? In other words, in your trusting in him, is there something that you need to deal with? Are you embracing sin instead of dealing with it, instead of taking it to God? God's word commands us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not in active rebellion against God. If you're not holding on to something that that you won't turn loose of, and y'all don't turn this into these gigantic things that nobody's ever guilty of. One of the biggest problems with Christianity is that we do with Christianity what we do with reality television. Right? We watch things on reality television sometimes to feel better about ourselves because, after all, you can always find somebody worse than you. That's not what this is about. Any sin that you've turned toward, any, anything that you've got in your life that you won't turn loose, and it's not just the big stuff. If you have concluded that I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, and I'm just going to do this because this is who I am and God will have to deal with it, the bread and the cup are not for you. And furthermore, if there is sin that you have not addressed in your life, maybe it's an addiction. I don't know. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness. Maybe you need to make something right with somebody else. If you refuse to do that for your sake, do not eat and do not drink. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. This is a time of remembrance, but this is a spiritual time, my friend. The warning here is real. These are not empty words. If there is sin that you won't turn loose, if there's something you need to do to make things right, let the bread and the cup pass. But, again, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are living out repentance, recognizing that you're not perfect, if you know that you need to be forgiven, and if you're willing to take that to the Lord, then take and eat, take and drink all of it. For God has given this to us so that we might be strengthened in him. Let's now pray and thank him. Our Father, what a blessing it is to have this time. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup, for the body of our Savior which was broken, for his blood that was poured out. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please now take the bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat all of it. Now please prepare the cup. Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 11 that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Take and drink all of it. My friends, the bread and the cup have been passed. And by God's goodness, he has given us this time together. Think on it. Dwell on it. As my beloved Hebrew professor said so long ago when I was in seminary, we had a chapel service. He showed us how to do communion. And he said, men, because it was just men there learning to be pastors, he said, men, look at it. Look at it. He said, it's at communion where God grabs you by the lapels and gives you a good shake and says, look at what I had to do to save you. Dwell on it because this is how deep and how wide and how far and how near my love is for you. By God's goodness, he has given us this time. Let's now stand and close by singing the final stanza of number 242. just a moment I will offer the benediction the choir will offer the response but please remain as results are announced receive the benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace and life both now and forevermore amen